The UK has admitted defeat on the online safety bill. Asterisk. Cars are a privacy nightmare. Full stop. A bunch of good political news for a change and much, much more. Welcome to Surveillance Sport 150 Big Milestone, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. <laughs> Woo, that was a change. <laughs> okay. On that note, we're going to go into our usual promo segment. If you want to keep us going, we have Patreon. You get perks. For $5 a month or more, you get to ask us a question, and we answer most of them on the air. For $10 a month or more, you don't have to listen to this segment. You get more of our analysis, more of our banter, just more content in general. If you don't care about any of that, but you want a recurring way to support us, we have LibrePay. And of course, if you want the maximum amount of privacy and anonymity with your payments, we have an arrow. So thank you guys for supporting us, continuing to support us, keeping us going, and here's to 150 more. And with that, we'll launch into our highlight story. So this is a big one. Britain admits defeat in a controversial fight to break encryption. I'm going to quote the article here. The so-called spy clause in the UK's online safety bill, which experts argue would have made end-to-end encryption all but impossible in the country, will no longer be enforced after the government admitted the technology to securely scan for encrypted messaging for signs of child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, without compromising users' privacy doesn't yet exist. Although the UK government has said that it now won't enforce the unproven technology on tech companies and that it essentially won't use the powers under the bill, the controversial clauses remain within the legislation, which is still likely to pass into law. James Baker, who is the campaign manager for the Open Rights Group, a nonprofit that has campaigned against the law, says that the continued existence of the powers within the law means encryption-breaking surveillance could still be introduced in the future. Quoting James, it would be better if these powers were completely removed from the bill. Matthew Hodgson, the CEO of Element, the encrypted messenger, says nothing has changed. It's only what's actually written in the bill that matters. Scanning is fundamentally incompatible with end-to-end encrypted messaging apps. Scanning bypasses the encryption in order to scan, exposing your messages to attackers. So all until it's technically feasible means is opening the door to scanning in future rather than scanning today. It's not a change. It's kicking the can down the road, unquote. I hate to be the downer because I know this made really big waves this week. And again, a lot of people are, you know, yay, victory, we went. Yeah, no, I don't I don't feel that way at all. It's still going to be in there and it's just a matter of time until they start enforcing it. I don't really have much to add on this one. Sorry to start off on a downer note. <laughs> now we're going to move into data breaches and we're going to get into some fun stuff here. So maker of a smart chastity cage left users' emails, passwords, and locations exposed. This affected 10,000 users and gave access to email addresses, plain text passwords, home addresses, IP addresses, and in some case, GPS coordinates. The research later found the company's also exposing user PayPal payments, including email address and day of payment. The company has an Android app, but not iOS. The company has been notified on June 17th about these issues, but has not yet fixed the vulnerabilities, and they were not named. So if you're using this, maybe it's time to move on to the next brand. Okay, University of Sydney data breach impacts recent applicants. So University of Sydney is a public university with 70,000 students and 8,500 personnel. It is considered one of Australia's most important educational institutes, according to the article. The article doesn't give any details on what was impacted or how many people, but says it was the result of a third-party service provider and exposed information from recent applicants and enrolled international students. An insurer has been fined $3 million for exposing data of 650,000 clients for two years. The Swedish Authority of Privacy Protection, IMY, has fined Trig Hansa $3 million for exposing 
on its online portal sensitive data belonging to hundreds of thousands of customers. This was discovered on the back-end database and was accessible without authentication by manipulating the URL. This impacted about 650,000 people and exposed personal data, health information, condition details, financial information, contact details, social security numbers, and insurance details. FreeCycle confirms a massive data breach impacting 7 million users. So FreeCycle is an online forum dedicated to exchanging used items rather than trashing them. The data includes usernames, user IDs, email addresses, and MD5 hashed passwords. Attackers already put the data up for sale weeks ago, and apparently FreeCycle was just now notified about it. Chipmaker NXP has confirmed a data breach involving customers' information. The number of people impacted not specified yet, but data potentially includes full names, emails, and postal addresses, business and mobile phone numbers, company names, job titles and descriptions, and communication preferences. This was alerted by Troy Hunt of Have I Been Pwned? He's the one who let NXP know about this. This was around July 14th, but they're only now beginning to investigate. Here's one that's a little bit different. Hamilton Hospital Network has reported five cases of staff snooping to Privacy Watchdog this year alone. A major Hamilton Hospital Network has reported 11 privacy breaches, including five involving snooping to the Ontario Watchdog this year alone. The most recent case resulted in Hamilton Health Sciences, HHS, firing eight employees for looking through personal health information of some 4,000 patients over 12 months. Four additional cases also involved employees snooping on or looking at records out of curiosity. The IPC did not provide details about the other six cases. So far, two employees have been terminated and 42 patients whose records were looked at were notified. And the notification letter says, our investigation concluded that these were cases of snooping. There was no evidence that any of these employees printed, downloaded, or electronically shared your information with others. Unquote. C-Tickets says cyber criminals accessed customers' payment data again. This is another one with the main attorney general, and their statement suggests that mage cart skimming was involved. Thus, between February 28th and July 2nd, debit and credit card numbers, security codes, and pins would have been accessed. This impacts more than 300,000 people. Johnson & Johnson has disclosed an IBM data breach impacting patients. This comes from their healthcare systems, specifically CarePath, which is designed to help patients gain access to Johnson & Johnson medications, offer discounts, and cost-saving advice, and provide guidance on insurance coverage and refill alerts. The data included full names, contact information, date of birth, health insurance info, medication info, and medical condition info. It's unclear if this was MoveIt related, but IBM was definitely a MoveIt victim, so that is entirely within the realm of possibility. Drynox Booksellers suffers data breach impacting over 800,000 customers. This is a bookstore in Australia, New Zealand, and Hong Kong, plus a little bit online as well, for those who aren't familiar, and they found out they were breached via Troy Hunt, and this impacted full names, date of births, email addresses, postal addresses, gender, and membership details like account creation, gold expiry dates, account status, card ranking. Okay, and our last data breach, again, is a little bit different. AT&T customers doxed themselves en masse in Reply All Nightmare. So apparently this all started when a particular customer noticed that they got like an email newsletter from AT&T and they noticed that the email address looked a little bit odd. It said, uh, do not use pod1non at list.att.com. And, and this basically just kicked off a huge, like, reply all. Like, I, I guess his response got sent to everybody. And then, of course, once other people realized they could do it, they started responding and sending stuff. It sounds like, for the most part, it was kind of harmless, you know, other than the fact that your inbox is getting cluttered, which is kind of annoying. It sounds like it was mostly kind of harmless, like nobody really did anything malicious. But unfortunately, that meant their email addresses became visible to everyone else on the list. 
This was the result of a misconfigured setting in Exchange. Apparently, all AT&T had to do was just click a certain box, and this wouldn't have been possible. Some of these email addresses are, because there were several of them they found, some of them are still active. This also showed that customers have no way to really opt out or unsubscribe from this list. And now we're going to go into companies. We're going to start with Microsoft. That's finally explained the cause of the Azure breach. So this happened back in July that they reported that a state actor had been inside their network for more than a month and had gained access to both Azure and Exchange accounts, including several belonging to the U.S. Department of State and Department of Commerce. They were pretty brief on the details, and they were also criticized for things like going out of their way to avoid using the words hacked, vulnerability, or compromise. Instead, they called them issue and incident. And other things don't imply they did anything wrong. And they charged customers to keep logs, which would have otherwise helped catch this hack sooner. Now Microsoft has finally given some more details on exactly what happened. It started with the corporate account of one of the engineers being compromised, then used to steal signing keys. Now, in 2021, a workstation from a developer crashed and the device dumped the logs and uploaded them to the debug environment, which is what allowed the attackers to access the expired key. Normally, the key would have been redacted, but a previously known vulnerability prevented that from happening just this time. So this issue doesn't seem to have been addressed, but they did say that the key shouldn't have worked anyways because it was a consumer key and the API didn't check to validate if the keys were enterprise or consumer which helped enable this entire attack on the internal side of things. In an email, a Microsoft representative said the engineer's account was compromised using token-stealing malware, but didn't elaborate on how it got installed. If other corporate accounts were hacked by the same threat actor, when Microsoft learned of this compromise and when the company drove out the intruders. In addition to those questions are these. Yeah, why don't you ask these? Because I don't know what you're saying here. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm quoting the article. So yeah, there were some additional questions. Why wasn't a key as sensitive as this one stored on a hardware security module? I guess that was the main question I copied from there. Hardware security modules, for those who don't know, are dedicated devices that store important information and are designed to prevent the form of key acquisition that Microsoft disclosed. So kind of like a, a YubiKey on crack. Why weren't they using HSMs? I'm just gonna kind of roll these into one because they're kind of related. Our last two stories are Google stories. The first one says, Google is enabling Chrome real-time phishing protection for everyone. So we covered this, I think a couple weeks ago. Basically, so Google has always had safe browsing, which is um not exactly, but it's kind of like DNS level blocking. They keep a list of known malicious domains. And if you have safe browsing enabled, it checks the domain you're going to against this list. And if it's known to be malicious, it says, hey, that's a malicious domain, don't go there. They recently rolled out a new opt-in feature that's a lot more real-time and they're going to be getting rid of safe browsing. There are some privacy concerns with this one because now Google is getting a real-time list of every domain you visit, which goes into our next story. Google's cookie-killing tech is now on almost every Chrome browser. Privacy Sandbox is now at 97% adoption, and they are hoping to have it to 100%, I think, by the end of the year, they said. Third-party cookies will be disabled in 2024. Basically, Privacy Sandbox, for those who are just joining us, we've covered this before. Third-party cookies allow advertisers to track you directly and build a profile on you because they follow you around the web. Most browsers for the last like decade or so have had the option to disable third-party cookies, except Google. So instead of just introducing that option, Google has now said, and for the record, some of them even have it enabled by default. Google has now said, no, 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 we can fix this problem. Let's create this thing called the privacy sandbox where we get rid of third-party cookies we will collect all the data about you based on your browsing, and then we will sell the ads to the advertisers. So we become the middleman. For the record, there has been the option to block third-party cookies in Chrome. I don't know how long, but really? it's, there. it's there now, yeah. And it's 
probably been there for a while. I just don't know when it was introduced. All right, and now we're gonna go into research. And this is a fun one from Mozilla, and they uh, really talked about this and went in depth, and I'm really glad to see more coverage of this because it's very undiscussed. Cars are the worst product category Mozilla has ever reviewed for privacy. So this is part of their project called Privacy Not Included, where they rate various products and services for privacy practices. Mozilla did review cars and their data telemetry practices, and it really wasn't good. So all 25 brands reviewed collect way too much personal data. For context, 63% of the mental health apps, another product category that really sucks at privacy, they reviewed earlier had this ding. The gist is that they can collect super intimate information about you from your medical information, your genetic information to your sex life, to how fast you drive, where you drive, and what songs you play in your car. And yes, those are all things that are actually found in some cars that they collect. Yes, your sex life. In huge quantities, they then use it to invent more data about you through inferences about things like your intelligence, abilities, and interests. So the actual numbers here are 84% share and sell your data, 84% of brands, 56% with the government, but that should be a no-duh moment, 92% don't give you the ability to request data deletion, and they publish no information on security practices, even basic things like what's encrypted, in transit, or at rest, and a lot more. It's a very eye-opening article. This was a good one. I really liked going through this one. Our next story is an interesting one. Scammers can abuse security flaws in email forwarding to impersonate high-profile domains. Quoting the article, sending an email with a forged address is easier than previously thought due to flaws in the process that allows email forwarding, according to a research team led by computer scientists at University of California, San Diego. It's called forward-based spoofing, and researchers found that they can send email messages impersonating organizations. Such spoofing is made possible by a number of vulnerabilities centered on forwarding email. The original protocol used to check the authenticity of an email implicitly assumes that each organization operates its own mailing infrastructure with specific IP addresses not used by other domains. This impacted Outlook, Gmail, iCloud, Zoho Mail, and a few others that I don't think they named. Researchers reported the issue to Microsoft, Apple, and Google, but to their knowledge, it has not been fully fixed. And quoting the head researcher, that is not surprising since doing so would require a major effort, including dismantling and repairing four decades worth of legacy systems. While there are certain short-term mitigations that will significantly reduce the exposure to the attacks we've described here, ultimately email needs to stand on a more solid security footing if it is to effectively resist spoofing going forward. So Zoho and Google patched this to the best of their ability, I believe. They didn't really state explicitly like what they mean when they say they patched it. They were just like, oh, they patched it. So I'm assuming they introduced all these mitigations that were possible. Zoho and Google patched it. Microsoft confirmed it existed. Gaggle, which is a mailing list service, said that they would change protocols. So I guess that's kind of like one of the mitigations. And Apple is still investigating. And then quoting the uh, article again, but to truly get to the root of the issue, researchers recommend disabling open forwarding, a process that allows users to configure their account to forward messages to any designated email address without any verification by the destination. Providers should also do away with the assumption that emails coming from another major provider are legitimate. In addition, researchers recommend that mailing lists request confirmation from the true sender address before delivering the email. This next story is really similar to the DEF CON one that we covered last week. I don't know if it was last week, but it was definitely in the last few weeks. Uh, there is a hacking device called Flipper Zero that can spam nearby iPhones with Bluetooth pop-ups. This is very similar to that story we already covered. The researcher at DEF CON was using this to show people that Bluetooth wasn't disabled on their phone as a proof of concept. They pretty much also 
said that people could abuse this. And now we are starting to see a hacking device that can actually do this. And realistically, this is probably not a threat for most of us, but it's worth being aware of. And it's always worth disabling Bluetooth when it's not being used. We're now moving into politics. We're going to start off with 404 Media. Customs and Border Patrol tells airports its new facial recognition target is 75% of passengers leaving the U.S. So CBP has told airports that it plans to increase its targets for scanning passengers with facial recognition as they leave the U.S. The new goal is 75% of all passengers. It's unclear if it was related to a shift in goals, but one traveler was recently told by airline staff that CPB said everyone has to do it when they asked to opt out of facial recognition while boarding for an international flight. This seems to be only related to international flights leaving the U.S., and I, I couldn't see why, but it seems like CBP is under pressure from Congress to use more biometric processing. Apparently, the Congress-mandated goal is 97%. So they want 97% of people confirming their identity with biometrics in order to leave the U.S. And then just the last thing to add from CBP, their spokesman said, this is a national, not per airport goal and applies to flights departing the U.S. So the it's not 97% per airport, it's 97% of all flights leaving the U.S. Up next, Montana's new genetic privacy law caps off 10 years of innovative state privacy protection. So over the last 10 years, Montana has, with little fanfare, or national attention steadily pushed to protect its residents' privacy interests through sensible laws that recognize the unique threats posed by new technologies. Now Montana has passed one of the nation's most protective consumer genetic privacy laws, which is called the Genetic Information Privacy Act. In 2013, Montana passed a law requiring a warrant before police could obtain location data generated by electronic devices, and since then they've passed laws prohibiting government-based surveillance and limiting facial recognition to providing customers with explicit privacy rights to their online data and preventing utilities from selling or sharing data without consent. In 2021, they restricted familial searches of government-maintained DNA databases and are one of only two states requiring a warrant to search genetic databases. They also added electronic data to their state constitution search and seizure protections, which is really cool. The new law broadly defines genetic data to include not just the genome, but also other related data, sets comprehensive notice, use, and consent requirements for companies who process genetic data, requires companies to provide clear info about their practices and privacy protections, requires consumers express affirmative consent for initial collection and again for secondary uses or data transfer, and prohibits the disclosure of said data to employers or health or life insurance providers. Our next story is a really quick one. It comes from Norway. Norway court rules against Facebook owner Meta in privacy case. So we covered this story, um, I don't know, a month or two ago when it first came out. Norway was trying to find Meta 1 million crowns per day, which is, depending on how the dollar fluctuates, it's about $100,000 a day. At the time this article was posted, 93200 So they were trying to find them per day for non-compliance with privacy regulations. Meta tried to take this to court and argue... I don't know what their argument was, but either way, they tried to get it overturned and the court has decided, nah, dog, this is cool. Stay the course. Over in Poland, the Senate says use of government spyware is illegal in the country. The commission announced on Thursday the conclusion of its 18-month investigation into allegations that the Polish government used NSO spyware known as Pegasus to spy on opposition politicians and other politicians around the time of the country's 2019 elections. Pegasus cannot be used under Polish law, the report reads. This is because the Polish legal system does not allow the use of programs in which acquired operational data is transferred through transmission channels uncontrolled by the relevant services, as this creates the risk of violating its integrity and does not ensure its confidentiality, as required by law. In other words, NSO's spyware is not designed in a way that respects Polish law, collects too much information, and cannot guarantee that that information is secured properly, according to the report. 
The commission also concluded that the Polish government used Pegasus to retaliate against opposition figures and that these surveillance operations negatively influenced the 2019 elections in the country. The commission compared these abuses with Russian government hacker activities in the 2016 elections in the United States. A lot of the people, when they think about Pegasus, they think about dictators using spyware. And of course, it's true. But what this report basically says is, look, when Pegasus is sold to democracies, it can cause great harm to core democratic processes like elections, which is what someone from Citizen Lab told the TechCrunch. Next up, we got FOSS, free and open source news. And we just have one story this week, and it comes from Calyx OS, who is now, quote unquote, sponsoring a maintainer position for F-Droid. They didn't actually say what this means, and they cited a GitLab issue as like their their source. So uh, from what I can tell from reading that GitLab issue, basically Calyx is donating a developer who will focus on maintaining the Android app, F-Droid, to free up the rest of the F-Droid development team to focus on other things with F-Droid, like the overall project. There are a number of legitimate complaints with F-Droid, in my opinion. This will address some of them like low target SDKs. If you read the blog post, it comes from Calyx's blog, but they're talking about basically their roadmap for like, here's what we hope to accomplish with this donation. There will also be some specific changes for Calyx on how F-Droid is bundled, which again should address some of the security concerns that some users may have with Calyx and the way that F-Droid has escalated privileges and things like that. I actually, I didn't put this story in here, but I'm going to add it. For those who use Tailscale, Molvad VPN just partnered with Tailscale and it's super cool. So now for anyone who needs to like connect to their home network or use a VPN to connect to whatever the hell they want, and you use Tailscale so you don't want to have to like port forward your Wi-Fi at home, which is insane. I wouldn't do it either. But if you use Tailscale, previously it was hard to use Tailscale alongside a VPN, but now just built in natively into Tailscale, you can just like subscribe to Molvad. And if you automatically use Tailscale, you set it as your exit node, and then there you go. So now you can connect to your home network and go through Molvad at the same time, all through one VPN tunnel, which should make things on mobile especially easy. Oh, one important detail. I don't think if you're a current Molvad subscriber, you can like port your account over. This might be wrong, but I'm fairly certain you have to like subscribe to Molvad within Tailscale. I think that's the only way to do it if you want that integration, I think. So someone definitely fact check that and leave a comment if that's incorrect. We didn't put notes for this, so this is just based on my memory quickly reading the article. And misfits, experts fear crooks are cracking keys stolen in LastPass breach. Oh my gosh, if anyone who's listening to this needs one more reason, for whatever reason, even though we've covered so many LastPass issues over the last several years, if you need that final reason to finally move away from LastPass, which can take like 15 minutes to do of your time, just, just saying, and you'll save some money too. The LastPass free plan sucks. Just saying. But if you need one more thing, the TLDR is that a security researcher started noticing a large amount of cryptocurrency being stolen to the tune of $35 million frequently from people who the researcher knows or believes to be using reasonable security measures, but also are heavily involved in cryptocurrencies in some form or another. The only commonality she can find is that they were all LastPass users at the same time of the breach. So this isn't actually a confirmed 100% we know for sure people are actually going into these LastPass breaches, but we know that LastPass databases were leaked and we don't know what's really happened since then, but there is now this new attack that's happening to people who are all conveniently LastPass consumers. And it's not like LastPass is like a dominant monopoly in the password manager business. So I don't know, it's pretty suspicious. That's all we got for this week. So once again, the UK has temporarily admitted defeat on the online safety bill. 
I'm a little bit skeptical of that and I'm not alone. You know, I'd love to be wrong for the record. We'll see how that plays out. Cars are a privacy nightmare, not really news, I don't think, but it's always good to have research backing this kind of stuff up. Pretty solid research from Mozilla, so good job to them on that. A bunch of good political news for a change, you know, Meta getting fined and uh, Poland outlawing spyware and much, much more. So, you know, as always, stay subscribed and we'll keep you updated on these stories and anything else we covered as we hear more about it. Reminder that you can keep us going. Patreon is one way to do that. We're trying to put a lot of work and time into this. We handpick the articles. We write all the summaries ourselves. We edit everything in-house. You know, we do the thumbnails. Everything is done by the two of us. So any support you guys can offer really helps. If you want to give $5 or more a month on Patreon, you can be part of the Q&A. If you want to give $10 or more, then you don't have to listen to this pitch anymore and you get more of our banter, more of our analysis, things like that. If you want something that's going to support us in a recurring fashion, but you don't really care about the perks, we have LibrePay. And also, I noticed I do read the exit surveys on Patreon because I want to know if there's room for improvement. And at least one person has had issues with PayPal on Patreon. LibrePay uses Stripe. So if you're trying to support us on Patreon and it's not working there, you could try LibrePay. You might have better luck there. And of course, if neither of those work, you can just support us directly with Monero. It's totally anonymous. We don't see anything about you, but we do see the support and it really adds up and helps us a lot. So thank you guys so much for your support, regardless of what method you use. We want to get 97% of you on our Patreon. (laughs) Yes, 97%. If Customs and Border Patrol can do it, so can we. Yeah. We're going to go for 98%, <laughs> actually, just to outdo oh, the Oh, yeah. We, we got to show up the government. So thank you guys for listening. The final thing we want to ask of you, as always, share the podcast around. Make sure you're subscribed. Again, we've always got updates to these stories. So definitely hit the subscribe button. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option. We're trying to reach as many people as possible, and you can help us do that. So thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with a whole new set of stories. I won't be back next week. I'll be back next week with a whole new set of stories holding down the fort. <laughs>